and we're looking at this guy today, Samson. But it says right there that this is not Samson. If you, um, if you were ever part of Sunday school or vacation Bible school, you probably learned about Samson. And they always show Samson as this strong guy. I was going to bring a friend of mine today if we were outside. Um, can you turn those lights on for everyone? That'd be great. So um, I was going to bring this guy. We're helping him plant a church in Norwich. Uh, Walter McNeil is his name. And Walter um, bench presses 400 pounds. And so uh, maybe he's a Samson. His brother is world class. His brother uh, bench presses more than that. And I shared that last night at Saturday night service. And then Donald John. And why would we say that? Because people kept asking him, what's the secret of your strength? And if he, were, if he looked like that, you wouldn't ask him what the secret of his strength was. <laughs> you would know the secret of his strength. The secret of his strength was his commitment to God. And so um, we're going to look in Hebrews chapter 11 and start there. Chapter 11, verse 1. And it says, now faith is confidence, but we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. So, chapters 1 through 10, lives to bring us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, to bring us from, from people who are rebellious against God to being children of God, saving faith. Chapters 1 through 10. Jesus is it all. He does it all for us. And we are saved by faith. When you get to chapter 11, it starts to move into living by faith. Now, the order is important. It's always more important. We say this is one of our distinctives. We like to put more emphasis on what God has done for us than what we can do for God. And so why would you come up with a distinctive like that? Because that's what the scripture does all the time. The book of Hebrews does it. It, it spends 10 chapters talking about what God has done for us. It spends one chapter talking about how people walk that out. And then the next two chapters, which are relatively small, give us some hints on what we can be doing with that faith. And all through the scripture, it's like that. There's more emphasis on what God has done for us than what we can do for God. But now we're talking about living by faith, and we're looking at some people who have lived by faith. And we see this description of faith in at least I've paraphrased it when I've been doing it this summer, saying that faith is confidence in what God has said, regardless of circumstances or situations around us. So what is it? It's confidence in what God has said, regardless of circumstances or situations. God will do what God said he was going to do. I can believe that. I can trust that. And so these people that we're looking at, these people of faith, they believe that God would do what he said he was going to do. And then the other thing is that faith is not new. This is what the ancients were commended for. And we've been saying that this book we're reading is an ancient book, 2,000 years old, this book of Hebrews. If at the writing of Hebrews they were ancients, they're really ancients now. So this particular passage that we're looking at is 3,800 years ago, or 1,300 years before the New Testament comes around. 
And so the ancients were commended for it. Faith is not new. It's been there since the very beginning of time. Ever since there's been humans, there's been faith. And we are now in this string, this long string of succession of those who have had faith in God and have walked with him. And it has enabled them, and it will enable us. It empowered them. It will empower us over all of the circumstances of life. What kind of circumstances? Oh, every circumstance. Loneliness, barrenness, poverty, loss, alienation, everything. And so the Hebrew Christians that are reading this book are discouraged. And so these are accounts of people of faith. And so now we're looking at Samson. And I think we have the scripture. So let's, let's stand and read this whole passage together since we have it here. And I think this is in the New King James. I usually read out of the NIV, but this is the New King James. And we might as well just read it together. There's going to be three slides. And um, I can't say some of these names. So when they come around, I'm going to drop out and you pronounce them. <laughs> How's that? Is that fair? Fair deal? <laughs> here we go. So again, the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. Now there was a certain man from Zor. There's another passage there in the beginning where it says the children of Israel, what they had done. I put them out of order here. Tried to do this in the middle of the night because uh, here's what it says at the beginning of Judges. When all that generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation arose after them that did not know the Lord nor the work that he had done in Israel. So we're looking in the book of Judges, and here's the story of the book of Judges, is that the children of Israel were in Egypt for 400 years. They went down into Egypt. There were 72 of them. They went down as a family. They went down during a famine. They were convinced that after the famine, they were going to go back home and start life all over again. Well, they stayed in Egypt, and they grew, and they were blessed. And it says there's a pivoting point where it says there arose a king in Egypt who did not know Joseph or Israel, and he made them slaves. And so they're, they're, 400 years they become slaves in Egypt. God brings them out with a mighty hand, with the blood of the lamb, he brings them out of slavery into a new life and then brings them to the promised land. Same thing he's doing for us. Brings us out, bondage from the blood of the lamb, and he's bringing us to the promised land. And so the cool thing about these people, when they're going into the promised land, they're going into a land that God said he is going to give to them. 
In the book of Genesis, he said it would be 400 years before they went in there because the sin of the Amorites had not yet reached its fulfillment, but uh, judgment would come, and those people that were in the land, God was going to judge them and kick them out because of what they've done in the land. So they're going to go into the land, and here's the cool thing about them going into the land is they have no king. They have no king. I love that idea of not having a king, not having a prime minister, not having a president, not having any of that. They were supposed to submit their lives to God and to God alone. How cool is that? So how do you live? You just live, who's, who's your ruler? God. Who do, you, who do you pay taxes to? Nobody. You know, I give to God, but God is my ruler. And God wanted to create a people where he was their ruler. Now they will eventually ask for a king, and they'll get a king, King Saul, uh, probably not the king that they wanted, but they're living in the land. And they're doing whatever they want to do, and they're supposed to be serving the Lord, but they don't. And so what happens over and over again in the book of Judges is that they don't serve the Lord, things fall into decline, God raises up a judge, the judge takes all of their oppressors away, and then they live for God, and then it happens all over again. Sort of just a human cycle. And this particular cycle was going on in Judges. Now, there's two things that are going on. It said there was a generation gathered to their fathers, the ones who were obeying God. But another generation arose. Generations come, generations go, right? Uh, another generation arose after them that did not know the Lord nor the work that he had done for Israel. Two things there. They didn't know the Lord personally, and they didn't know what the Lord had done. So we do this thing with 7th and 8th graders. It's going to start this week. A curriculum we wrote called Know What You Believe and Know Why You Believe. And so for 35 weeks, starting this week, 7th graders will go into a class and they will learn what Christians believe. Well, what do Christians believe? We're going to do three weeks on Christians believe the Bible. We're going to do one week on God the Father, one week on God the Son, one week on God the Holy Spirit, one week on the Trinity. We're going to go through all of the things that Christians believe. Not trying to shove it down their throat. We're just trying to give them information so that they know what Christianity is. And one of the things that we say in the beginning of that class is that people get confused about what Christianity is. Because people think that Christianity is some kind of moral ethic or some kind of way of being a nice person. Well, Christians are supposed to be nice. That's what the scripture says, that if the spirit is in us, then we should be starting to bear that fruit of love, joy, kindness, goodness. We should be demonstrating all of those things. But it's not just a morality. It's not just a bunch of do's. It's not just a bunch of don'ts. It's all about Jesus. Christianity is all about Jesus. So we just want to give them that information. This is what Christianity is. They can do with it whatever they want to do with it. We do year two. We do know why you believe. And what they do with know why is why do we believe the Bible? Why would you believe in the resurrection? Why would you believe that Jesus you know, was born of a virgin? Why would you believe any of those things? But see what happens here is they didn't know the Lord personally because we can't in that class make any kid believe, Right? It would be wrong to try to make them believe. And it would be wrong to try to force them to believe. We did it one year where at the end, we always do baptism at the end. If you want to be baptized, make a commitment to Jesus. We did it one year and we baptized 20, I think 20, 21, 22 um, junior high students. 
And but we asked them, did they want to? But it says here that they didn't know the Lord personally. You can't make somebody know the Lord personally. But they also had not, in Israel in those days, told them what he had done. That we were in bondage to, to, to Egypt. We were in bondage to Pharaoh. We were slaves and we cried out to God and God delivered us. And there were all of these plagues and all these miracles and amazing things. And God brought us out and he brought... Well, they didn't know that. They didn't know the Lord, nor did they know the stories. So... That's where the book of Judges begins. And so um, we're going to turn to the book of Judges. We're going to turn to chapter 13 and look at that again. What's going on here? And so how do you get to the book of Judges? There's five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, then Joshua, the coming into the land, and then you get to the book of Judges. So we're looking at chapter 13 with this guy, Samson. In faith with this guy, Samson. So we just read the passage, and it's a little bit confusing what's going on. Again, it's the, ancient, it's the account of ancient Israel some 3,800 years ago, uh, 1,300 years B.C. Uh, they came into the land. No earthly rulers, no earthly king. God was their king. The generation arose that didn't know the Lord, and then a deliverer rises up and frees them because they have oppressors, Philistines, all these other people come over them, capture them, rule over them, and they cry out to God, and God raises up a leader, and then they do good, and then they do bad again, and God raises up a leader over and over and over again. They do good, then they do bad. I feel like I'm looking in the mirror. <laughs> it's sort of the life of human beings, and it's sort of the life of people, and it's the life of nations, and it's the, the, the way that people live. So here's what it says. The birth of Samson, again, reviewing what we just read. It said, again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. You see, they did evil, and because they did evil, they're being ruled over now by oppressors. The Philistines are oppressing them. And they're crying out. We don't like this oppression. Well, you brought it on yourself. But it says, verse 2, a certain man of Zorah named Manoah from the clan of the Danites had a wife who had no children, unable to give birth. Now, this is going to be a miraculous birth. There are several miraculous births in the scripture. Hannah has a miraculous birth. The birth of Jesus is miraculous in that he's born of a virgin. And it says, the angel appeared to her and said, you're barren and childless, but you're going to become pregnant and give birth to a son. See to it that you, her, the family, see to it that you drink no wine or other fermented drink and that you do not eat anything unclean You'll become pregnant, and you'll have a son whose head is never to be touched by a razor because the boy is to be a Nazarite dedicated to God from the womb. And he will lead in delivering Israel from the hand of the Philistines. This is a family story. This is about family faith. Because it's not just about Samson, who is the boy, but it's about the whole family. Now, this Nazarite vow, you can read about it in Numbers. This isn't something that everybody in Israel was supposed to practice. It's not something that everybody in Israel was supposed to do. But it was something for this family. 
This family was supposed to live this way. They were supposed to be separate, and God was going to use this separated family to deliver Israel from the oppression of the Philistines. And so the story is the same. The story of Judges is the same as human history. It's the same as family histories. And it goes like this, that when a corporate people, whether it's a family, we're corporate people right here, right? So we could use ourselves as an example. So when a corporate people, whether they're a family, whether they're a tribe, because tribes are just overgrown families, or a nation, nations are overgrown tribes. When a corporate people sin or do evil or act unjustly, it brings calamity upon the whole group. Right? We've seen that, and you see that in nations, you see that in countries, you see that in world history over and over again, that, that when evil is happening, it affects everybody, and the nation collapses. Well, you know, maybe there's some good people in that nation. Maybe there's some people that haven't participated in this stuff, but it affects everybody. And what's happening in Israel in these days is their sin and their evil, and they're acting unjustly, treating people unjustly. God does not like people to be treated unjustly. God likes justice. It brings calamity upon the whole group. And in this case, the family is ancient Israel, or the nation of Israel. And in this case, it's Samson's family that is being called to action, being called to faith to save a nation. It's a family affair in this situation. We look at Samson, but it's Samson's family. It was the whole family was supposed to be doing this. Samson, unfortunately, being, seems at this point, the only child, Samson, unfortunately, he, he couldn't submit. He was controlled by the big three. He was not submitted to the Lord. He was not submitted to the purposes of the Lord. He was not concerned with the welfare of the nation. And he really didn't care about the unity of his family. Samson's doing a lot of things to put him on the outs. Here he is, a guy who's being called with a purpose, being called with something to do, and he's going the other way. And here's the big three. And these are the big three that run all through Scripture, all through the Old Testament, all through the New Testament, all through people's lives, all through history. It comes down to these three. And these three get Samson. The lust of the eye, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. Well, what's the pride of life? Well, the pride of life is thinking that you're a big deal. Thinking you're a big deal. And so um, Samson's strength, this is my friend Daniel, Daniel Fusco. He's a pastor in Vancouver, um, uh, Vancouver, Washington. And I don't know how long he's been growing those dreadlocks, but I wonder if Samson's hair was that long. You think Samson's hair was that long, or you think it was longer? Daniel's an interesting, interesting, interesting person. But Samuel's strength was his commitment. As long as he was in, God was with him. As long as his hair was long, God was with him. That was the sign of his commitment. Now, I don't know if that's the sign of Daniel's commitment. <laughs> Daniel is also a jazz bass player that became a pastor. I was on a board with him, a missions board, for, for, for many years. I don't know if Daniel cut his hair, if uh, his anointing would leave or not. <laughs> but Samson, if he was going to cut his hair, his anointing would leave him. His anointing would pass. His strength 
was his commitment to God. As long as he was in, God was with him. So was it the hair or was the hair a representation of the commitment? The hair was a representation of the commitment. It's the same thing with, with a, a ring. This, this ring's not my marriage, but it's a representation of my marriage. And so um, Samson's strength was his commitment. As long as he's in, God is with him. But he liked other stuff. So what other stuff did he like? We said it. The lust of the? The lust of the? And the pride of life. This is, this is going to drive this guy. This guy is going to be driven by all of these things, even though he had purpose. And this fits into every single one of our lives because we are all called to have some purpose. And the thing that's going to fight against our purpose over and over again is the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. Thinking I'm better than somebody else. Maybe thinking better, I'm better than my spouse or better than my partner or better than, better than my coworkers, better than whatever. Gets us in trouble over and over and over again. He liked other stuff. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. And so what else we need to say, though, about this guy is he did have some advantages. This guy definitely was born into advantage. And some of those advantages that he had was he's born into a good home. We all know this, right? Like, everybody's not born into a good home. But if you're born into a good home, good chance that it's going to work out okay for you. Sometimes not. I was born into a very good home. <laughs> I've, I, I, maybe, maybe I'm turning out okay, but it... It did not turn out so good. But he came from a good home. He had privilege, advantage. He had other advantages. And one of the advantages is he seems to be really good looking. And it seems like he likes that and maybe flaunts that and plays around with it. He likes the ladies and the ladies like him. Plays around with it. Other advantages that he had was he had some God experiences. This guy and his family had some radical God experiences that other families probably never would have. He had purpose, and he had a defined purpose from the day he was born, he had a defined purpose. I mean, many of us, we, we need to just sort of go along until we figure out, you know, what am I here for? What am I supposed to do? What do I like? You know, what am I going to do? You know, what are my propensities? Well, he knew right from the beginning. He's got lots of advantages. And the whole family together was living by what was called a Nazarite vow. The whole family together. Nazarite vow. And so, again, this doesn't have anything to do with Jesus the Nazarene or the city of, of Nazareth. It was called a Nazarite vow, and you would do these certain things. What, what things would you do? You wouldn't cut your hair. That would be a sign. Um, you would never, ever drink of the fruit of the vine or anything fermented. You would never, ever do that. You were, you were prohibited from going near dead bodies and dead carcasses. You were prohibited from those things. And there are other prohibitions, things that you don't do. You are set apart for God, and you're different and it's obvious to others that you are different. You look like Daniel Fusco. 
So, um, wasn't supposed to cut his hair. Symbol that he set aside for God's purposes. Supposed to stay away from alcohol, dead bodies. Supposed to stay faithful to his family. Supposed to stay faithful to his nation. And supposed to live a God-centered life. There's lots of advantages. From the get-go, this guy has advantages. And he's strong. He's strong. I think next week, I might bring Walter, or the week after, um, bring Walter so that you can meet him. I met with him with Anthony Chapman. Some of you know Anthony. Anthony and Irene are back for a little bit from Israel. Uh, finished his PhD there, finally, which got him into Israel. That's how he could be a missionary there, because he was a student for 16 years. The guy was a, a student in Israel. And I was sitting with him with Walter, and I said, hey, you know, Walter, Walter can bench press 400 pounds. And he said, that's me, my wife, and my youngest. <laughs> so he had a lot of advantages. He was strong. He was strong. A lot of advantages. But he failed. He failed. He missed the mark over and over and over again. And his failures did not just affect him, but affected his family. Can you imagine a disappointment in the family who an angel told them, this is the boy that's coming. You're going to have a miraculous birth. He's going to deliver the nation. He's going to throw off the oppressing Philistines from the nation and, and make us free again. Can you imagine the disappointment in his family when this guy starts doing the things that he's doing? What, what three things affected him? The lust of the, the lust of the, and the pride of life. Over and over again, we don't have the time to read through all of these chapters, these several chapters, and, and read them in Judges. Read about this guy. But those three things keep getting him over and over again. And so um, the, the lust of the eyes, where's that? Chapter 14, here's this guy. Chapter 14, it says that he sees this lady. Now, she's not an Israelite. He sees this lady, and he comes and he tells his parents, he said, hey, I saw this girl over there. Go get her for me. Wow, this guy's got a lot of respect for women, doesn't he? Just to go get her for me? I like her? Wow, this guy, this is the way that this guy lives his life. He sees things and he wants them. He ends up with several women, and women are always his downfall. He's going after the girls, and the girls are going after him. You know, he's strong, he's good-looking, he's... He's driven by the lust of the eyes. It's going to get him in trouble every single time. He's driven by the lust of the flesh. He's not supposed to, to be drinking alcohol. And, and you, you go through these accounts and you see him, it looks like he's partying it up with everybody. And he's not supposed, there are certain restrictions that he's supposed to have with his body and certain things he's not supposed to do, like touching the dead carcasses. And he's out and about and he sees a dead animal and there's a bee's hive in there with a bunch of honey and he sticks his hand in there, he's not supposed to do it, and gets the honey because he just wants to feed his flesh. He doesn't care that he's not supposed to be doing that. He's going to get the honey from the carcass. He's going to do whatever he wants to do. He's just motivated and driven by the lust of the eyes. Go get her. I, I, I like her. Go get her for me. Bring her to me. I want that girl. Lust of the flesh. Pride of life. He really did think that he was something. 
and he sort of plays around with it. We're told he has supernatural strength, this guy. And so, you know, Walter has, you know, he can bench press 400 pounds. Um, he looks like he can bench press 400 pounds. <laughs> but this guy, we're told he had supernatural strength. He probably didn't look like the guy we showed in the beginning. The Sunday school pictures make him look like a Marvel superhero. But he's probably not that at all. He's probably not that at all. He's probably just some scrawny, squirrely... Why? Why are you so strong? What is it? Why are you so strong? And so, so what happens with this guy, chapter 16, verse 21, we're jumping all the way ahead. Instead of delivering his people from the oppressors, he was taken by them and oppressed himself. And so um, there's the verse, but if you do have a Bible, particularly a paper Bible or even a digital Bible, Let's, let, let, let's, let's turn to that. Let's read this aloud, and then we'll look some more at this particular chapter. So let's read 1621 aloud. This is what ends up happening to this guy. Then the Philistines took him and put out his eyes, brought him down to Gaza. They bound him with bronze fetters, and he became a grinder in the prison. Well, what's a grinder? A grinder is, in the ancient world, they would grind wheat. And they would have these stones, these large round stones. And many times they would just use beasts of burden or animals to, to turn those stones. So those stones would just keep turning and they would put the grain in there and it would crush the grain. They would use animals to do that, to power them. Well, in this particular case, they take Samson and they use him to power that wheel. He is just walking in circles grinding grain in prison. And so that's what it says in verse 21, and if you want to read down a little bit further, we'll do that in a minute. So there he is in prison, and, and what's happening to him while he's in prison? They gouged out his eyes. They brought him down to Gaza. They bound him with fetters, and he became a grinder in prison. So... Um, couple of things, actually. Blind, bound, and grinding away. So the first terrible thing that happens to this guy, who's driven by the lust of the eyes, by the way, now he has none, is the blinding power of sin. The blinding power of sin is pretty interesting. And we've all seen it. Whether you're a believer in God or not a believer in God, you have seen the blinding power of sin. And it, one of the terrible things about the blinding power of sin is how it destroys our senses. We start to become desensitized. You know this, the downward spiral of conscience. Well, how does that work? Ah, kind of simple. You go out one night, you're young. You go out with everybody, you get plastered. You wake up in the morning and you're like, man, like that was bad. That was wrong. I gotta, I, I don't, I don't need to do that anymore. I'm not gonna do that anymore. Till the next time, and then the next time and the next time, and your conscience just doesn't bother you anymore. To the place now where you're just looking forward to it. Until finally the place where you are controlled by it, where it has now taken control 
of you, the downward spiral of conscience. When we didn't read this passage, but if you go through this, the account of Samson, and this girl's playing with him. He's playing with her. She's playing with him. And uh, she's trying to find out the secret of his strength, and she finally cuts off Daniel Fusco's dreadlocks. And she says, the Philistines are upon you. And he said, I'll go up just like before. But he didn't recognize that the power and the blessing were no longer with him. I'll just get up like I always get up. Well, that's the downward spiral of sin blinding us. I'll just, I'll just get up like I always get up. I'll just continue on. You know what? You've played it wrong. You've completely played it wrong. You play around, you play around, and you play around, not seeing what's going on around us. And now the blinding power of sin has got us where we can't even think or see straight. The next one, it just brings you to this next one, right? It brings you to the binding power of sin. And so the blinding power brings us into bondage, brings us into where we're, we're bound. Well, where does that start? Well, you can look at this story of Samson. It starts with just playing around, just playing around with it, flirting, flirting in the office, saying funny things, throwing out little one-liners, dirty little somethings, being casual. And then you never intended it, but now there's a pregnancy. Now the kids are confused. Where's dad? What's going on? Now you're paying the bills for two households, maybe three. And now the family has to deal with you. The lust of the eyes, the blinding of sin, the desensitizing of conscience, bringing us down to the place where now we're bound. And bam, like Samson in the spur of a moment, you're done. You're done. You can't get out of it. You have gotten yourself into a position you cannot get yourself out of. And then where does it bring you from there? To the grinding power of sin. Welcome to your new life <laughs> that you have designed and made for yourself. My father used to say, it took me years. I never understood what in the world he was talking. My father used to say all of these things, and I was like, yeah, he like, talks another language, you know, it must be like from his mother's home country or something. But he used to say, you made the bed, you sleep in it. I was like, I never make my bed, Dad. You know, like, <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. Me, make a bed, you know, what are you talking about? You make the bed, you sleep in it. Well, that's what you've done. That's what Samson has done. He's made the bed, and now he has to sleep in it. This is his new life. He's stuck with it. For Samson... This grinding is real. For some of us, you know, it's maybe metaphorical, but for him it's real. He's really grinding this thing out, walking in circles, getting nowhere. Lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, pride of life. Kind of interesting that those things are the very things that happened to him with the Philistines. They got rid of his eyes. He could no longer fulfill anything with the flesh. Pride of life? 
these guys start making fun of him. They start using him for entertainment. They start using him like a clown. But um, Samson has an awakening. He has an awakening. So if you're in chapter 16, I'll read a little bit further. Verse 23, we'll read all the way to the end. Now the rulers of the Philistines assembled to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their god, and celebrate saying, our god has delivered Samson, our enemy, into our hands. Everybody laugh. Everybody clap. And when the people say, saw them, they praised their god, saying, our god has destroyed the enemy into our hands, who laid waste and has multiplied our slain. And while they were in high spirits, we don't need any explanation for that, right? They're slammed. They're sloshed. While they were in high spirits, they shouted, bring out Samson to entertain us. So they called Samson out of prison, and he performed for them. This guy, lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, pride of life, born into a privileged lifestyle, blows the whole thing. And they stood him among the pillars. And Samson said to the servant who held his hand, he said, put me where I can feel the pillars that support the temple so I can lean against them. The temple was crowded with men and women and all the rulers of the Philistines were there. And on the roof, there were about a thousand men and women watching Samson perform. HBO pay for per view. <laughs> This is one of those $400 pay-per-views, watching him perform. And then Samson prayed to God. His hair's grown back. His commitment's coming back to him. And he said, Sovereign Lord, remember me. Please, God, strengthen me just once more. You ever pray that prayer? Just once more. Just give me another opportunity. Let me get another chance. Just once more. Please, God, one more time. Let, let me with one blow get revenge on the Philistines from my two eyes. Samson reached out towards the central pillars of, at which the temple stood, bracing himself against them, his right hand on one and his left on the other. Samson said, let me die. Let me die with these Philistines. And then he pushed with all his might and the temple came on the rulers and the people in it. Thus, he killed many more when he died than while he lived. And then his brothers and his father's whole family went down to get him. They brought him back and buried him between Zoar and Eshtael the, the, uh, in the tomb of Manoah, his father. He led Israel for 20 years. Well, he was kind of a rotten leader, but in the end, in the end, it works out. He has an awakening. He has an awakening. But in order for him to have an awakening, he had to be blind. He had to be bound. He had to be grinding away as a prisoner to recognize it. And what does he recognize? He recognizes God is good. God is good. And so for some of us, you know, hear again those wonderful words of hope that God is good. God is good. We've, we've come this far, and maybe the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, and all of this stuff is coming. You know what? God is good. One more time. Give me another chance. Is there, an, is there another chance in you, God? Absolutely. 
We like to say that God is the God of the second chance. Third chance, fourth chance, fifth chance, last chance. Wonderful words of hope. Nobody needs to feel despair. God gives yet another opportunity. And so today, yet is another opportunity. Start all over again. Samson's prayer. Remember me. Remember me. Give me strength one more time. And when we realize our mistakes, we should be praying immediately. I realize my mistake. I, I pray immediately. I love this, where he says, let me die. Let me die. There's an amazing lesson here. You know, we said a couple of weeks ago that you should be able to cut the Bible anywhere and it would bleed red. Cut it anywhere and it will bleed Jesus. Anywhere. He's everywhere. And he's in the prophecies. He's in the pictures. He's in even these people. Because what happens with Samson is by his death, he overcomes the enemies. Same thing with Jesus. By his death, the enemies were overcome. By Jesus' death, the ultimate death, the enemy of death has been defeated. And so this guy, by his death, the enemies are defeated. And there's a theme. Maybe we should have, maybe we should have made that a preaching point. Jesus' death. Or maybe we should talk about death to our old way of living. Or maybe we should talk about death to self, overcoming the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. But the conclusion is this for all of us. For all of us, it works like this. Every single one of us as an individual, every single one of us as a family, every single one of us as a corporate people, no matter where you're a corporate people, whether it's your class or your group or your team or your friends or your chess club or whatever it is, we all have callings, we all have potential, but we're all prone to the same gravity in the same pull as Samson. What, what gravity and pull is working against us? What is it? The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. Every single one of us, it's, it's trying to pull us down. Gravity. And, and we get trapped, and some of us get destroyed. But God, with God, the end can be even better than the beginning. Isn't that amazing? The end can be better than the beginning. It was with Samson. All of that mess, all of that messed up life. And yet there's the end. It's way better than the beginning. And what are we doing 3,800 years later? 3,300 years later. We are talking about Samson. Finish well. It also tells us this. There's another lesson here in the whole book of Judges. Because cut it anywhere, bleeds red. The whole book of Judges tells us that we need a savior. What do you mean? They were to go into the land with no king. There's no king, no earthly ruler, no governors, no mayors. They were submitting to God. And God gave them everything. He gave them a good land flowing in milk and honey and everything that they needed. He gave it to them. And what did they do? They blew it. 
gave him everything, and they blew it. And what does that tell us? It tells us that we can't save ourselves. Human history bears it out. And so not only are the prophecies and the pictures, history itself and the history of the scripture bears it out that we cannot save ourselves. We need a savior. And that savior is Jesus. So um, let's stand and pray and close with some song and prayer and Lord, thanks that uh, thanks that with you, Lord, that the, the end can always be better than the beginning. And Lord, how many of us uh, right here, right now, are right in the middle of uh, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life? Lord, how many of us right now are being blinded by sin? And Lord, how many of us are past that point where where the blindness is now causing us to be bound and we've got ourselves in situations that we can't get ourselves out of. Lord, you can get us out of it. Lord, show us how to walk away. Show us how to get out of this. Show us how to get freedom. Lord, some of us are probably playing around with relationships we shouldn't be playing around with. And Lord, some of that is just because we have a wrong estimation of ourselves. Lord, we're just overtaken by the pride of life, thinking that we're something that we're not, thinking that we're better than we are, thinking that the grass is green or someplace else. Lord, rescue us. Rescue us from this insanity and bring us back to you.